Hi, and welcome back to the Leasing Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking to Amanda Bostock. Amanda is an English teacher and IB Extended Essay Coordinator out in Europe's sunniest capital, Lisbon, working at St. Julian School. We discussed the best text Amanda's ever read, studied or taught and why, an introduction to her career to date and current position in Portugal, how the IB's expectation for inquiry learning translates into English teaching at her school, how planning and materials are organised between the department she works in, how Amanda's approached the need to balance canonised writers with new or local voices in the curriculum, the specific challenges that her students face in English and how the department combats this, the part technology plays in delivering the English curriculum at Amanda's school, and finally, recommendations for resources for those who'd like to continue improving. Thanks again to Amanda for offering up a portion of her summer holiday to speak with me as well as the many insights she offers about her approach to English instruction. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you usually get them and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK if you'd like to be kept abreast of this kind of education chat. Uh, Okay, Amanda, can we start by talking about uh, the best text that you've ever read, studied or taught and why that would be? um, So three very, well, two similar texts and one a little bit different. Um, The best text I've ever read is The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, Mm. which I've reread a fair few times now. Um, it's, It's quite contrived and it's quite cliche with all of the kind of epigraphs that Wilde kind of crams in there, but there's just something about it that I really, really love. And there's this passage where Dorian's describing when he falls in love and it's um, all about how he wants to make the great lovers of the world jealous. And I just think it's really powerful writing. Um, it's one of the books that I love so much that I would never teach it because I feel like it would ruin it. <laughs> I just don't yeah. want that. Um, the best text I've ever taught is Animal Farm. I find every single year when I teach Animal Farm, I get such interesting reactions, especially now being in a private school, an international private school. Um I get very interesting reactions to the concept of shared ownership and things like that. Uh, Um, And I think it really opens students' eyes to a lot of things. So I think it's it's one of the books that every time I teach it, I find something else to be excited about. And um, yeah, looking forward to starting off my year with that again with Year 9 this year. Um, And the best text I ever studied was Mary Barton by Elizabeth Gaskell, which again is not the best written book in the world. Um, but I'm a 19th century specialist. I, mean, and I was going to say. About, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a pattern here. <laughs> it's a book about the area that I'm from. It's the, the mill towns around Manchester. And when I was at uni in London, it was like, oh, there's a little bit of home. Um, and it kind of sparked this interest in the way the working classes are represented in 19th century literature, which went on to be what I specialised in with my master's as well. So um, it's a book that I just, I find really interesting because it's, somebody who's from quite a privileged-ish background who is looking on at the poor the industrial workers and trying to kind of save them but doing it in a very odd manner um and being quite supportive of kind of political rights for workers without explicitly being supportive so that's a book that I think really it really changed a lot of um 
the way that my academic career went after I read that in first year. So I think that's the book that I'll still always come back to as, yeah, that was the that was the best book I've ever studied because it did spark a lot of things for me. You mentioned there that you, you sort of you from Manchester, studied in London. How did you find your way to teaching in uh, Portugal? <laughs> well, um, kind of by accident. So I did the school-based teacher training, so the school direct. So I was in a school from day one all the way through, um, which is challenging. So I qualified in 2014. Um, mm. I went back to teach at my old high school for three years, um, which was a really interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. um, but it still remains, you know, one of the best schools I've ever worked in. It's an absolutely amazing school. And um, the only reason I left was because I'd moved to a different part of Manchester and it was a 45 minute each way commute on a good day. Um, so I applied for a job at a school five minutes away from me instead. And that was the worst decision I've ever made in my life. I lasted one half term um, and then I quit teaching completely because it was wow. that, it was, yeah, it was that bad. So I'm not going to name, but it was such <laughs> a bad experience that I completely left the profession and the head teacher at my previous school found out and um, insisted that I come in and do small group intervention work with year 11. So working with kind of four students at a time, because she maintained that I should not be leaving teaching. Um, and I think that was an amazing thing. She didn't have to do that. You know, she freed up budget money to bring me in to work with students um, mm. And that kind of got me rethinking, but I knew I couldn't work in the UK anymore. I wasn't happy with the way the education system was working. And so um, on a bit of an impulse, I applied to my current school. Um, I'd been to Lisbon about five years before. I'd been to Portugal, different bits of Portugal a couple of times since. And it's a place that both myself and my partner really love. Um, and we knew that if we ever moved abroad, Portugal would probably be at the top of the list. So I applied not really thinking anything would come of it. And then got the interview and thought, well, I might as well. And then got offered the job and went, oh, I've got three months to <laughs> completely uproot my life and yeah. move to Portugal. Um, so I'm going into my fourth year here now. Um, and yeah, it's brilliant. It's It's been, it's really re-sparked my love of teaching because there's a lot less kind of intervention in what we do in the classroom. Mm -hmm. there, there's obviously there's some, but um we've been a lot, left a lot more to kind of develop who we are as a teacher and you know have a bit more freedom and teach the way that we want to teach teach the text that we want to teach a lot of the time um and it is just a lot easier teaching you know smaller classes having a work-life balance that kind of thing um you know I very rarely take work home with me anymore which is I never could have imagined that in the UK. You know, I was working till yeah. nine o'clock at night every day and then one full day at the weekend. And now I take work home maybe twice a term. So it's 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 great. I like I like the balance. But in, in terms of Lisbon, Lisbon's one of those um cities which kind of it, it comes up every now and again in terms of like I teach in Hong Kong, but I know that um for those teachers looking to like move back to Europe eventually maybe not necessarily to the UK Lisbon's like a bit of a dark horse in terms of the fact that it's quite a an attractive destination for like a lot of teachers as opposed to your Barcelona's or your Rome's why why do you think that is what what is it that you like about Lisbon I've never been uh for example so I don't really know much about it but what is it about like the way of life which um is so kind of attractive it's very laid back um there's, the Portuguese are really odd. <laughs> so they are very 
bureaucratic so to get anything done takes you know miles and miles of red tape which I'm sure you can (laughs) understand Mm. from the Hong Kong perspective um but the actual kind of way of life is very laid back you know it's um waking up a little bit later in the morning unless you're a teacher um longer lunches you know sitting out in the sun in the evening a, a culture that's kind of built around you know sharing food sharing drinks coffee that kind of thing um cake cake everywhere and seafood um yeah. but it also helps that you know lisbon's the sunniest capital city in europe although it doesn't always feel that way um it's also really helpful that you've got the main city of lisbon and then where i am which is kind of half an hour outside but still technically in lisbon we're on the coast we're on the atlantic coast with you know amazing water sports we've got um lots of really interesting national parks and hiking and things so i think it attracts a lot of outdoorsy people not me but um most of the people i work with are very like oh we'll go camping we'll go hiking we'll go surfing we'll go stand up paddle boarding so i think that does it as well um there's also a lot of new schools opening there's a lot of international schools and british international schools opening at the moment um which i don't know if it's a kind of post brexit lots of people yeah. deciding to get away to portugal but um traditionally there's been a lot of schools in the algarve and now we've got yeah. a lot opening in lisbon as well so i think that helps that people are seeing seeing lisbon as an option more frequently than they would have done previously when there was only maybe two two or three schools that they could have applied to hmm, that's interesting okay um one kind of big difference between the uk and international te- well i don't know I, this is my assumption but um the idea of like inquiry learning or inquiry based this that and the other i know that you teach the ib at your school um to what extent does that get discussed implemented what have you in in your department or in your classroom how does it manifest itself um, so we teach the IB diploma, but we teach uh, yeah. English curriculum at Key Stage 3 and 4. So that can be quite tricky because we're teaching international GCSEs, which are very much not inquiry-based yeah. learning. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we're really working on at the moment, so we're in the kind of, we're in a relatively young stage of a new cycle of planning with a relatively new head of department and a new second. And something that they're really working on is embedding some of the key IB skills lower down. Um, so there's something that we're developing at the moment, which I still don't fully understand, but I've been assured it's going to work brilliantly called, um, they're calling it an unschooling scheme. Mm. So what it means is that the students are going to go and find their own poems on a theme, and then they're going to create their own anthologies. And we're going to use that to teach. So we're not going to have set texts for this year eight poetry scheme, which Good you know could go, could go one of many ways, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have faith in it um the year group that coming in from year seven are very very capable so I think we'll be okay but we'll see um ask me in a few months um we're also really building up this idea of real world application so um I'm developing a unit at the moment on kind of journalism which we did this year with like current issues but we're doing it as a school-based thing instead so you know we'll do go and report on a game that's being played in PE and do that as sports uh, go and interview a member of the ground staff and do that as like you know investigative journalism and things um so one of the things we're really trying to do is make things more immediate and more kind of global because that's the thing that we find when they get to ib is this idea of um kind of global issues and understanding their skills in this international context is something they're not very good at and our school's a little bit strange in that it is an international school, but we are primarily Portuguese students. Okay. 
Um, there are a lot of other nationalities as well, but the majority, I would say, are Portuguese. So trying to make them aware of that world kind of beyond our little bubble is, is something that we're really working on. And the other big thing we're taking from the IB is oracy. Um, so because such a large part of the IB, particularly at standard level, is the oral assessment, we're mm-hmm. bringing in these independent kind of research oral tasks, oral essays at GCSE, um, things like that, just to kind of really develop that. I know a lot of other subjects are doing much more inquiry-based things, um, but I think it kind of lends to other subjects. We kind of mm. do it as where we can, you know, it's usually things like here's a topic, go and find some text, or here's an aspect of context, go and present it in whatever way you want. Um, but I think these new units that we're working on are definitely taking on board that spirit of independence and of making things relatable and going and finding things out for yourself. So I'm hoping that that will be quite productive. Year eight are kind of our guinea pig year with that. <laughs> so you say you mentioned you've obviously got like head of department, two IC, but you also mentioned before the fact that it's, I think this is typical of most international schools. There's a lot more freedom to plan things or approach text in the way that you do it. Does the department have like an expectation of how planning materials or schemes of work or like do you share everything amongst the department is it one person makes everything and everyone follows it what's the dynamic like in that um respect um so when i started it was pretty much free for all um it was so when i started at school it was okay you're teaching year seven eight nine and ten um here's your year 10 text you can choose any of them so i was like okay great do that um year nine you need a modern novel okay <laughs> then it was just very much you know year eight you're teaching yeah. the gothic teach what you want um so that was a little bit challenging especially yeah. because i was then doing the ib and i was new to not just new to the ib i was new to post 16 teaching full stop so oh. that was a little bit in at the deep end um we have a new system which we've had we started pretty much last year which is shared planning so everything lives on our google drive um, and what we did with all of the schemes last year was weekly responsibility so for year seven through to year 11 it was this week this this is our scheme of work for the term you're going to do week one you're going to do week two this is roughly what you're going to cover and then within that everybody can kind of go off and edit on their own um, I find that quite tricky because I like to have kind of I have to kind of replan it my way so that I know what's coming up in the lesson yeah um but it is helpful to have you know people coming up with completely different approaches and completely different texts so we did a year nine unit on protest poetry and because everyone was doing a different week we all had very different poems but also very different things we did with them like performance poems of a Nigerian eco poet um and things like that so that's a really good a good way of doing it um what when what I'm noticing with a lot of the new schemes of work is that we tend to have them developed if they're quite short schemes it's one person developing them and then people kind of editing them as we go so I'm developing this year eight um I did a year eight graphic novel scheme last year on um illegal by Owen Colfer which Mm. is an amazing text but it's only like a four-week scheme and then everyone just kind of edited it as they needed to um so I think that's where we're going is one person will have done the kind of shell and then editing within that. Mm. Uh, but I'm waiting to see what happens with things like allocated meeting times and planning times because our timetables changed this year. Um, mm. So we're just kind of waiting to see how that works. 
but it's, it is really helpful having, even though a lot of, because I'm not a very experimental teacher um, compared to a lot of the others, I will tend to take something and go, oh, that's too complicated. I'm just going to do it like this. Um, but it's good to have that idea of, oh, well, I could give that a go or, oh, I hadn't thought about linking that with that. Um, and it is, it is really helpful in that sense. Yeah. We don't necessarily have a set way that the lesson should go. This is something that we talked about in department meetings last year is that in theory, it should look roughly like this. But it's not explicitly laid out that, you know, you must have these parts to your lessons and you must have X, Y, Z activities. Um, so there's a lot of freedom with that because we are a really, we're a very collaborative department, even with IB where we're left to our own devices pretty much. We still share all of our um, bodies of work and texts and things. And there's a lot of discussion that goes on in our office because we're really lucky that we are all in the same office space as well. Um, so it's quite easy for us to just kind of say, oh, what do you think of this? Or how would you do this? Um, so it's no one's really precious about their work as well, which is really helpful. Um, so it's it's in progress. But the the theory yeah. is yeah, everyone's kind of collaboratively planning and then adapting to their classes because we also teach mixed ability all the way through. I see. It, it's really tough to. I've seen kind of like both sides of that particular coin. Actually, I've been ahead of department where you feel the pressure to sort of say, you know, this is the way you would like it done or it should be done or you want to give guidance to new teachers or you see certain teachers and you think mm, it could be more effective, et cetera. But then I've also been on the other side of it, like a new teacher and having been told you must use these materials you feel like, oh, this isn't me. Like, I, I don't agree with, and it's it's such a hard, it's a really, really difficult kind of, um, I think you need to get a little bit lucky. Like it sounds like you have in that you need a collaborative department um, and you also need like a relatively decent culture of the school, I guess, for there to be like ongoing conversations and um, and and kind of like a teamwork and that sort of thing. But it's, yeah, it's always, I'm always interested to hear that, how like different departments handle that particular aspect of the job. Um, you're obviously teaching in Portugal. Uh, I, I think I can count on like two fingers, like the Portuguese writers that I know. But given the fact that you said before that most of the students that you're teaching are Portuguese with like a smattering of other nationalities, how does that kind of affect the text that you choose at IB level or obviously IGCSE that, that you get told which ones you've got to do? How does it affect your decisions there for IB with regard to, do you do any Portuguese writers? Do you leave that to the Portuguese teachers? Do you make sure there's books from other cultures that they're not going to come into contact with? Um, how, how has that kind of played out? Um in terms of Portuguese authors, I also know very few, which is ridiculous. Mm. I've been here for four years now. <laughs> um, but because we have the Portuguese department and they do either Portuguese as a second language or Portuguese as a first language, um, we do tend to leave the Portuguese authors mm. to them because I think we don't necessarily feel confident enough being able to teach it. And also teaching it in translation, especially things like, like poetry, you know, if we were to teach Pessoa in translation, I feel like we'd, we'd lose a lot of what makes mm. it so beautiful um so i know they do study um they study the kind of the, the big ones you know they study saramago lespecta mm. so that kind of uh Camoish, all the kind of the big names of portuguese writing um at ib we stay well away because quite a few of our students do the bilingual diploma mm. and because you can't double up 
Um, we just think the Portuguese department, I think, have set texts for IB, which we don't. So they tend to all teach the same texts for Portuguese um, first language. And then all the Portuguese B teachers tend to teach the same text, whereas we have complete freedom. There's no set thing at all. So all we have to do is check that they're not doing it in French, German, Spanish, whatever. Um, what we have been making a concerted effort to do, like every other English department in the world, really, is make our units more um, multicultural and more kind of expressive of international experiences. Um, particularly with, there are, there are some issues in Portugal around sexism and racism. If you ask the Portuguese, there is no racism in Portugal. No, <laughs> definitely not true. Um, we've had a lot of issues with things to do with sexuality as well, because Portugal is still quite a conservative country. And traditionally, our school has not necessarily explored those issues. And that's something that we've been doing quite a lot recently. And we've had a bit of a kickback, not as much as we expected, but we've had a bit really? of a kickback. Mm. Yeah from some quite conservative parents. Um, so that's something that we're kind of, as English teachers, we're aware of and we're thinking, okay, this is an opportunity for us to challenge some of those thoughts that some of our students might have. So for example, um, we did a year nine course on um, global issues and we used the Katie Hopkins refugee article. Yeah. Um, and that provoked some really interesting conversations because, you know, we have got a lot of students who move around a lot, but talking about concepts of refugees is very different and getting them to think about, because I always say to them, you know, when, when I was teaching in England, I was teaching refugee and asylum seeking children, and they are the most grateful children in the world when it comes to education, because they feel like, you know, this was something they very nearly lost. And I think it's a really good opportunity to open their eyes to maybe some of the privileges they don't realise they have. Um, I remember teaching a text in my first year to my year 10 class about whether school holidays should be shorter. And it was from the perspective of um, a head teacher in a deprived area with 100% pupil premium. And I was trying to explain to them, you know, schools for these students are, you know, they're feeding them, they're clothing them. And one of them said, but if they've got no money, how do they pay for their school fees? <laughs> um that's why we're having this conversation mm. you know things that you don't even realize they don't know so we have been making um I think poetry in particular we've been really making an effort to make it very diverse um the protest poetry unit was absolutely amazing we did civil rights protest we did um black lives matter we did eco protest um, we did um, spoken word, poetry, slam poems, and it was all very kind of multicultural and provoked some really interesting conversations. Um, there's a lot of new writers in the curriculum. So Year 8, are studying Bone Talk by Candy Gale, which is about an indigenous Indonesian uh, Filipino tribe, oh, which nice. is, and it's the story of the colonization of the Philippines, but told from the indigenous people's perspectives rather mm. than the American perspective. So you get this really interesting description of the first time they see a white man and it's like this giant with these really thin lips and this strange hair. And it's, you know, flipping that narrative on its head and getting them to think about, well, why is it important that we have this version of events? Um, IB, I always try and go for things that, I mean, the IB is great because you have to have multiple continents and things. I try to go mm. for things that really challenge Um and that's something this year I've been really trying to make my, my choices more diverse. So my standard level class starting in September, I've got a white American woman, a white British woman, 
a Korean woman and a black Nigerian man. So I've tried to kind of mix them up as much as possible, thinking about what my students wouldn't read in their own time. You know, I want them to, I want to introduce them to texts that are going to make them go, oh, that's really interesting that they wouldn't have gone and just picked up themselves. Yeah. Not that my students ever read anyway, but <laughs> if they did, they probably wouldn't pick the books. I'm They're unlikely. What's the, yeah. what is the Korean book that you're doing? Um, Human Acts by Han Kang. It's ah, about yeah. the Blind Youth Student yeah. Uprising. Oh, it's yeah. incredible, but it's really intense. Um, yeah. I taught it for the first time last year and I know that my class this year are going to find it challenging, but I think it's a really interesting and rewarding text. Um, yeah. And it's really good to get them thinking about student activism because a lot of them are involved in things like, you know, climate change is a, a really big thing over here, um, protests against environmentalism and things. So um, because obviously being surrounded by the sea, it's something that mm. is really on the minds. A load of our kids are surfers, so they're very kind mm. of on top of that kind of thing. So I'm looking forward to it, but it is, it's, yeah, there's a few torture scenes that are quite difficult to read with 16-year-olds. She's like, she's a weird one, Han Kang, in terms of the fact that when you see her interviews, she's so, I don't know, like, I don't know what the right word is, demure or kind of quiet mm-hmm. and shy, and but, like, the books are so intense. They're really, really, yeah, intense. My head of department right teaches the vegetarian, so it's like... <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, I can't handle that one. But I'll take this one with all the murder. I read The Vegetarian at like four o'clock in the morning in Manchester Airport one year and it was, it sent me, (laughs) yeah, into, um, it it sent me through the looking glass a little bit. Um, Interesting text. (laughs) Yeah. So the majority of the students are Portuguese. How does that translate into the issues that they have in English like more broadly what do they tend to struggle with um there are some common grammatical errors that we notice things to do with um so in Portuguese double negatives are fine mm. so like now it's like well you can say no and no in the same sentence so you know I have a year 10 that I've now been teaching every year I've been here and I still can't get him to stop using double negatives <laughs> um and it's like become a recurring joke in the classroom mm. um things like um, sentence structure, which I didn't realize until a couple of months in. I was like, I turned to one of my colleagues, um, speaks fluent Portuguese, and I just turned to her and said, In Portuguese, can you have really long sentences that just have tons of commas? She was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> That explains it. They don't understand, like, when we're trying to teach sentence structure, well, you can't have a sentence that's 17 lines long just because you put <laughs> commas in. That's not how it works. Yeah. So, um, that's something that we do find quite tricky. Um, the biggest problem I would say is because they don't read, um, mm. or very few of them read, and when they do read, it's not necessarily in English or at length. Um, it's vocab and kind of reading skills that we find are really struggling. Um, and that's something that I've been working on as kind of my professional development the last few years is bringing in the kind of, you know, the, the quickly closing the vocabulary gap kind of process yeah. of each explicitly teaching tier two vocabulary. So it's, you know, okay, give me some better words. How can we do this? Where's our impressive words? How can we sound intelligent? Um, And that's how I sell it to them is, okay, who wants to sound clever? Okay, use this word. Um, (laughs) And really like challenging them to do that. And one of the things that I noticed with my year eight class this year, who were the ones that responded, I think, most enthusiastically was if one of the ones who is a reader would say a word, they'd go, "What's, what's that word? 
and they'd be writing it down without me telling them. And I was like, that's good. Cause that means they're mm. actively thinking about, well, what can I take from my surroundings? Um, so one of the things we're looking at this year is how to make the library lessons as effective as possible. Um, now that we're up to an hour a lesson. So we have an hour long library lesson every two weeks and we're looking at how can we make that useful because they're not going to sit and read for an hour. They don't have the attention span. Um, I think that's the biggest problem that we find is those little kind of grammatical things that carry over from Portuguese. And if you don't know Portuguese, you wouldn't necessarily realize that that's where it's coming from. Um, and yeah, just a lack of reading, which I know is a universal thing, but it's really hard to teach them vocabulary, even though there's a lot of crossover. You know, they'll ask me what a word means. I'll be like, it's almost the same in Portuguese. Like, why? They just don't make that connection. Um so any kind of Latinate root words, we tend to have a lot that are very similar, but they just don't notice. So that's frustrating. Um, this um, sort of like the last few years has meant that we've all kind of got used to uh, begrudgingly, maybe for some like a technology and in the classroom and this kind of thing. Once once the lockdown ends, um, not like um, not the lockdown, sorry, but once um distance learning or online learning comes to a complete end, like something we're all looking forward to, what do you think you'll keep or keep using with regard to um sort of technological online platforms for teaching English? Um we were lucky that we already had quite a lot of technology kind of set up. So in our school, all, all Key Stage 3 students were given an iPad and that had been in existence since before the pandemic, which was really helpful. So we already had, you know, everything was on Google Classroom already. We were already using um, Google Drive and a lot of those kind of platforms. Um, it's it's very much, I've noticed it very much varies department to department. So the biggest thing that we noticed, so we went into lockdown in March of 2020, came back to school in September. Uh, and then we're kind of in and out. And then we were February to April, we were in lockdown. Um, and the biggest thing that I noticed in September, just looking at my year 11 class who'd come out of year 10 with me, was that in the six months they'd been away from a classroom, they had lost their ability to write under mm -hmm. time pressure or for an extended period of time. So that's the biggest problem that I've found is that they're using tech in other subjects almost exclusively and that's having this knock-on effect for us when we're trying to get them to write essays and they just don't have the stamina for it. Um, the things that I found really helpful about tech are things like giving them a chance to do things orally before writing it down. So the oral essay that we did with year 10, I really liked, um, and I'm going to get them to do that again this year. The idea of if you can explain it verbally, then you can write it down. Um, we do a lot of kind of filming, you know, putting things in characters, doing monologues, reactions, that kind of thing. Um, we've got green, green screens at school as well, and they're all really <laughs> adept with them. So they love a chance to get on the green screen. Um, and then the kind of more traditional things, you know, like researching tasks, things like that. Um, one of the things I'm really fond of is we have a stop motion app on the iPads. So they can make little stop motion cartoons of kind of key moments in text. Um, and, and that's always quite fun because they have to think about, well, this little figure goes like this. It takes ages, but <laughs> it's very amusing. Um, I think one of the things that came out of the pandemic that I'm really happy to have found is Massalit, the um, lecture system. I use that mm. a lot in my GCSE and IB classes. I find it really, really helpful, especially because the IGCSE texts change constantly. So they're really good for me in terms of developing my own knowledge of the text, but also 
um, really pushing some of my more able students, being like, well, actually, these are degree kind of level lectures when you think about it. But here, go and listen to that and find out more about George Orwell. Um, so that's been quite helpful. Um, and I think everything else is pretty much what we were already using it was just that we were kind of going okay well instead of writing this in your book you're going to do it on your google doc i don't think we did anything that was kind of too out there mm. that i can think yeah. of anyway we like i'm starting a new job in a couple of weeks time and um like it's uh, I, it, it seems like a silly question to sort of be preparing to ask but i was i was doing some preparation and i thought i don't actually know if they've got notebooks i don't know i know it's like a laptop one-to-one school and i certainly had i suddenly had a moment where i was like i really hope that they have notebooks and that that would have been a stupid question to ask in an interview like at that moment when they said do you have any questions but i i have that fear as well sometimes that that it's it's such an amazing uh, amazing crutch or bridge or whatever analogy you want to use for it technology but can't get away from the fact that sometimes to retain the information it does help to have them write things down for a couple of quiet minutes and just summarize things or or, or even illustrate it or diagram it or something like that so um I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath to see whether or not these uh new students that i'm teaching i'm sure they do um especially for subjects like ours where you know at the moment their exams are still done by hand and you have yeah. to i i say to mine you know for we do cambridge igcse so the language paper is two hours long. They have to read 2,000 words of writing and then they have all these really long questions to answer. And I'm like, you have to be speedy. When you're answering your literature question, you've got 45 minutes to read your extract plan and answer. You need to be able to write a good paragraph in 10 minutes. And I spent all of this year with year 11, at least once a week, putting a timer on the board saying, right, write your paragraph, make a note of your time. You need to beat your time next time because they just had no stamina left for it. They couldn't write. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what worries me, I think, going forward, is that if this is something they're getting used to, it's like (laughs) it's going to have a big effect for us, in particular the essay-based subjects, you know, for English, for history, because we're the ones where if they can't keep up, if they can't keep the pace of writing, that's where it's going to have the biggest impact. I mean, obviously tech has a lot of other impacts, but that's the one that really worries me as an English teacher. So um, I am quite strict with it. And my students are now at the point where the first few weeks they'll be like taking their iPads or their laptops out at the start of the lesson. And I'll just look at them (laughs) and it gets to a point later on where they'll just look at you and go, do we need it? No. Okay. (laughs) And they just, because all their other lessons, it's like, you must have your iPad out. And I'm like, don't you dare. I don't want to see it. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I guess you kind of mentioned a few there, but are there any other kind of recommendations for resources um, that you have for English teachers um, more so in the kind of international um, kind of sphere that you'd recommend for those people who want to continue improving this year? Um, I mean, the biggest impact on my teaching in the last kind of three years, I think has come from Twitter. Um, you know, I'm part of an amazing community of international English teachers. So we have kind of little Twitter DM groups for Cambridge IGCSE. We have one for IB and that has been amazing. You know, we had a little um, online meet last week of some of the IB English teachers to feedback on our what we'd learned from the exams process this year, because some of us did the exams and some of us didn't. And we had a few people in the group who'd been as examiners for different elements of the course. So we did like a little kind of debriefing together, which was really helpful. Um, there's also Facebook groups for 
um, different ID elements and probably for other subjects as well, actually. Um, so I'm in one for extended essay because I'm the extended essay coordinator um, and I'm in one for English teachers. And that's also really useful because you've got all these teachers around the world asking questions, answering questions, providing resources. Um, but away from kind of that collaborative work with other teachers, I think things like future learn and open learn are quite helpful. Um, just going on and being like, oh, I want to know more about what it takes to write a play and just going doing these little courses and things like that. Um, I think there's just so much on offer now, you know, things like Lit Drive, the online yeah. CPP they've been doing. The best thing about the pandemic is that for international teachers in particular, it's opened up all of the CPD that we were missing because the best CPD is going on kind of in schools in the UK and it's just not coming to us because, you know, we're relatively small. I mean, we're a department of somewhere between eight and 11, depending on the day. Um, so it's not like we're getting the same level of CPD provision that we would be getting in the UK. So it's good to be able to be a part of that, you know, things like when the Team English conference was online, it just meant that we had more opportunities for development and participation. Um, so I think it's just keeping on top of those, you know, making sure you're aware of what is available and talking to other people um, and just, yeah, asking loads of questions. Twitter is a scary place at times, but is also a really supportive place, especially amongst, I would say, the international educators in particular, because we're all in that position of being, you know, uprooted and, um, and starting over. It's a really supportive place. And um, it's, it's completely changed my teaching. It's got me through the last three years, definitely. Mm. Yeah, agree. I, I often feel like, um, if you do, if you used to go to kind of the workshops for IB and this kind of thing, there was a tendency to, um, you were you were on your guard in the sense that like you know just social awkwardness or that British thing of not wanting to come across as a know it all or, or as a show off or something like that. And I think Twitter kind of removes that um, particular concern because you put it out there and if people like it, they like it. No one really cares. They either follow you or they don't. Um, so it is a fantastic resource, yeah. With um, with regard to like those first language or, or IB um, um, kind of uh, DM groups, how do you find your way into those? Like, how do you um, get just on, in, in, get in a circle? To, yeah, just get talking to any international teachers. You know, if anyone tweets that they're you know Team International or Team English or whatever, it gets retweeted and it finds its way to you know the big names in international English teaching, but everyone's so supportive like there's no kind of oh you we can't let you in because we don't know you it's no we want to be supportive we want to help mm. each other and you know we'll come up with somebody will say oh I'm teaching this as an IB body of work and everyone will go oh my god I hadn't even thought of that amazing can mm. you send that to me I and mean, it's all very collaborative so I think just don't be afraid to kind of get on Twitter and just be using kind of hashtags and things to find your way into if you tweet things like Team English and Team International, then it finds its way to the people that will be like, oh, come and join us here. Um, I think there's an edXL IGCSE group as well. I think there must be because if we've got a Cambridge one, there must be an edXL one as well. Um, so I think that's the thing that I've really, I've really appreciated the most with international teaching is just how collaborative universally, it's not just, you know, in your school, especially because people move on so frequently you know, you get a lot of people who are like, I'm suddenly teaching a completely different spec. Can someone help me? Um, and everyone's very kind of open and sharing and giving. So it's it's a great little place to be. Yeah, it's really helpful. 
Um, okay, I, I think all that remains for me to say, Amanda, is thank you very much for giving up your uh, time today during the summer holidays to have a chat about uh, all things English. Um, hopefully, obviously, kind of the mainland Europe uh, um, struggling a little bit, aren't they, to kind of get all the, the classes back in for the new term. So I wish you luck and hopefully, uh, yeah, fingers crossed that can happen. Thank you very much for uh, joining me. That's all right. Thank you. <laughs>